Welcome everyone in person, everyone joining us on Zoom to another evening lecture with Francis Tavern Museum. Um, as we are just waiting for people to come in from our waiting room, I am going to just read a few announcements Ooh, about tonight, little preview there. So first thing, as a reminder, tonight's lecture is being recorded. So if you enjoy it and you would like to share it with someone who couldn't be here, it will be available in a few days. If you register for it, the recording will be emailed to you. If not, it will be available on the museum's website. You'll be able to find it there. So let's see. If you are joining us virtually and you have any questions during the lecture, please feel free to leave them in the chat or in the Q&A box. Both should be working. I'm just trying to fix my thing here. There we go. Um, and if you uh, think of your question, don't wait till the end if you're virtually type it in one of those boxes. We'll be monitoring both of them um, so you don't have to worry about forgetting it. If you are in person, I do ask that you hold your questions until the Q&A time, um, but you will get your chance to ask them. And as always, uh, we will try to get you as many questions as we can in the time that we have. And the views of our speakers are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York Incorporated or its Francis Tavern Museum. With all that housekeeping out of the way, let me now introduce tonight's speaker. Kenneth Scarlett is the author of Victory Day, Winning American Independence, The Defeat of the British Southern Strategy, which we'll be hearing about tonight. Ken's research background extends over 25 years. He is the recipient of the Daughters of the American Revolution, Ellen Walworth Medal for Patriotism, and the DAR America 250 Commendation. Ken is also the president of the Revolutionary Charleston America 250 and Scarlet Consultancy Global. He is a former liaison officer in Joint Forces Operation Command and holds a master's degree in intelligence and security from the Citadel and a business management degree from USC's Baltimore School of Business. Thank you, Sarah and Scott. Good evening, everyone. And uh, happy St. Patrick's Day Eve. I, I see the Irish flag out in front of Francis Marion uh, of uh, uh, Francis Tavern. Uh, first, I'd like to thank the New York Sons of the Revolution, Francis Tavern Museum, and Sarah Nishaw for inviting me to address this distinguished audience in this revered place. Thank you. These hallowed halls of Francis Tavern call us to remember and honor George Washington and his officers who won American independence on and off the battlefield. One of George Washington's greatest generals was not here in 1783 for Washington's bittersweet farewell to his officers. Weeks earlier at Princeton, New Jersey, General Nathaniel Green had already said his farewell to his commander-in-chief and closest friend. Many New Yorkers are familiar with Nathaniel Green, who faithfully served Washington throughout the war in numerous critical positions. Green stopped the British assault at Harlem in 1776 to cover Washington's withdrawal from Manhattan. 
and Green stopped the British at Springfield, New Jersey in 1780 on their way to trap Washington's army. Green arrested New York Mayor David Matthews just before Matthews' plan to assassinate Washington went operational. Fort Green Park in Brooklyn is named after him, as is, as is Green, New York. Perhaps Nathaniel Green's greatest contribution to winning the war for American independence took place after Washington and Congress appointed him Southern Continental Army Commander in the fall of 1780. In the ensuing two years, Green's Continental and Allied militia forces defeated the British Southern strategy plan to conquer America. And they liberated the Lower South from foreign occupation. So two things. Green's battlefront correspondences during this time made possible the writing of my book, Victory Day, Winning American Independence, the defeat of the British Southern strategy. These 8,000 correspondences sent and received at his command headquarters reveal an untold story about the final stages of the war to achieve independence. These papers, the hidden history of the Revolutionary War, were kept in dark trunks for over 200 years. The University of North Carolina Press published the last of the 13 volumes of Green's correspondences in 2005. So it's 13 of these. It's a 29 year effort. So their 29 year publishing project involved extensive transcribing, organizing, decoding, and forensic recoveries by multiple distinguished historians led by Drs. Chauvin, Conrad, and Parks. Your library doesn't have a copy, please encourage them to get all 13 uh, volumes. Two generations of forensic historians making sense of two massive trunks of rotting papers that describe the critical phases of the American Revolution as the events are happening. These contemporaneous records thought lost to the ages finally came to light. More than one historian has referred to the publishing of the Nathaniel Green papers as the Rosetta Stone of decoding the American Revolution. Approximately half of Green's correspondences to and from his fellow leaders involve his time as Southern Continental Army Commander. Over 600 correspondences were to or from George Washington. These records show that General Green's theater of operations stretched from Philadelphia to Florida from October 1780 to the spring of 1783. These records also show a very special relationship with George Washington, which was fundamental to winning the war. Green's correspondences provided the rich primary sources and direction in writing Victory Day. In total, Victory Day encompassed about 17 years of primary source collection, research, and investigation, and about two years of writing, peer review, and editing. Truth be known, there is no way I could have written this untold revolutionary story without the encouragement, support, and chief editing by my wonderful wife, who's in the audience today, Deborah, to whom this book is dedicated. Thank you. 
Victory. Victory Day tells a very different story about the final phases of the American Revolution, not found in textbooks. This book explains how America won the war and their independence. It has sent shockwaves across the historiographic record. Most of us knew Yorktown was not the end of the war, but there were no known primary sources that could walk us through the last 14 months of the war on American soil that drove the British from three lower South states. What many historians refer to, refer to as the lost year of 1782. How did four British armies totaling about 30,000 soldiers occupying four of the six major cities on the East Coast get pushed out of America after Yorktown when they had orders to the contrary? This book also reveals that the first battle of Charleston, Fort Charleston, I should say, South Carolina in 1776, transformed the scattered rebellion into a united revolution the world could endorse. The victory of Charleston provided the proof that the colonies united to defeat British, uh, the finest uh, British army and Navy. As a result, the spirit of 76 ignited into a bonfire across America. This joint continental and militia victory convinced all 13 colonies to sign the Declaration of Independence five weeks later in August of 1776, which gave credibility to the Declaration of Independence when it was sent to King George III and to Europe and to all of the newspapers across Europe. Victory Day also detail, details the final phases of the war, militarily, politically, economically, and diplomatically. It tracks the four different Southern strategies the British government approved to conquer America. From early 1776 to December, 1782. It provides an in-depth account of the lightning fast mobile war of territory possession from the British capture of Charleston in 1780 to their inglorious surrender of Britain's crown jewel 31 months later. Using now accessible firsthand accounts, Victory Day details a high pressure British withdrawal involving over five fleets of ships, which almost exploded into a cataclysmic battle between Britain and America's finest battle-hardened troops. Victory Day reveals that possession of the city-state of Charleston in particular and South Carolina in general were the linchpins to winning collective independence at the negotiating table and ending a war gone global. The guiding light in writing Victory Day came from a Thomas Jefferson aphorism. Follow truth wherever it may lead. With that light shining on a blank word document at the beginning of COVID, I let the Nathaniel Green papers and other now accessible primary sources chronologically walk me through the great story of winning American independence. This process revealed a previously unknown beginning and conclusion to the war. We hope many will find enriching on the doorstep of America's 250th anniversary.
Books like Victory Day are now possible because we live in the age of accessible digital archives, ground penetrating radar and keen American thirst for the historicity of the war for American independence. We now have the unprecedented means to separate legend from historical accuracy through global archival investigation. People can now research how our founding principles spelled out in the Declaration of Independence turned a visceral colonial rebellion into a revolution for human rights the world could support. Global archival accessibility now enables any diligent researcher to fill in the untold gaps of our Revolutionary War history using primary source material from the leaders who were actually running the war. Victory Day follows the trail of these sources and unedited command correspondences from the leaders trying to survive the war, tame it, and win it. Astonishingly, they reveal that the British Southern strategy was the British Ministry's primary plan to conquer America. In addition, these resources identified Charleston as the gateway to executing the British Southern strategy plans. They also described the dogged efforts of a network of leaders to emancipate African Americans in the course of the war and negotiate a peace with Native American nations. They reveal a war that did not end at Yorktown and one that came perilously close to a two-country solution like North and South Korea. These resources also reveal that sticking with our founding principles won out over a British government policy of conquest by punishment and brutality. In the final analysis, the men and women who stuck together and practiced the principles of conscience over King ultimately won the battle for hearts and minds that won the war for territory possession. For America to win her independence in the negotiating tables, continental and allied forces had to kick out all the king's forces and all the king's men with the help and consent of the lower south residents. But first, the British war machine and their southern strategy offensive to conquer America had to be stopped. The right of conquest still ruled the world. Tonight, I've been asked to share a few highlights of Victory Day. The four British Southern strategy plans for conquering America. Yes, there were four. And the role of a Quisling in formulating those strategies. I will also address the forced British withdrawal from Charlestown, South Carolina, 14 months after Yorktown, as the linchpin for King George III and the British Parliament to concede sovereign independence to the United States. With that as an introduction, I'll turn to the slides. On the screen before you, you uh, see the cover of the book, Victory Day. Obviously, the publishers said, well, we cannot put Revolutionary War Victory Day as a title. So we cut it down to Victory Day. Uh, the winning of American independence was unanimous, both with uh, me and the publishers. 
the defeat of the British Southern strategy went through several stages. Uh, the uh, slide that you see in front of you says that won the Revolutionary War, but there were actually three considerations here. Was it the defeat of the British Southern strategy to conquer America, or should it be that won the Revolutionary War, or is it enough to say the defeat of the British Southern strategy? The publishers won. And so on the sold copies, it, it is the defeat of the British Southern strategy. Now you'll notice this lithograph here, and I must uh, really give a shout out to the uh, uh, South Carolina Historical Society for uh, allowing us to, to use this uh, antique uh, lithograph. And it was black and white, we had it colorized. But this is a, a drawing uh, the, of uh, General Green uh, in Charlestown on uh, December 14, 1782, after the last of the British troops had uh, boarded uh, up to 300 ships in Charlestown Harbor uh, to, to complete their evacuation. And of course, you can see that they're very jubilant. So we thought that this would be the ideal picture to put on the cover. On the back, we were able to, uh, the uh, Delaware Museum uh, allowed us to use their uh, print, uh, the, their field print um, that shows the British ships in Charleston Harbor evacuating the British troops. So on one side in the harbor, you have the British evacuation rowing out to their ships. And then on the cover of the book, you actually see the victorious Continental Army uh, coming into Charlestown later that afternoon and being cheered as they arrive. So the content of um, the uh, British Southern strategy is, is an evolutionary strategy. So um, probably the first, not probably, but the, the first British Southern strategy was conceptualized and developed by um, uh, Lord uh, Dartmouth. Uh, there's, there's a college in Connecticut that's named after him. That, uh, some of you in the room may have even gone there. Uh, so his job, he, it turns out, he was the half-brother of Lord North, and we probably all know who Lord North was. Uh, well, in 1775, uh, after he made a couple of overtures to try and get the uh, Continental Congress to, to uh, forget about it and uh, not pursue uh, their, uh, their, their continental strategy. Uh, he developed the, the first uh, British Southern strategy plan. And that plan involved uh, invading Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and it, he, he referred to it he thought it was going to be quite easy to go into Charlestown. So uh, the plan was that they would go to Moore's Creek uh, and pick up uh, uh, a Scottish regiment there uh, and distribute them. They didn't have any right, uh, muskets at the time. Distribute powder and muskets, give them training. And they would conduct a land operation to come down to Charlestown while, while the British fleet went into Charlestown 
they thought it was going to be a silk glove invasion. And many of us have heard this term recently in Ukraine when uh, Mr. Putin talks about going into Ukraine as being a silk glove, meaning they're going to welcome him with open arms and that they're really uh, the, the, his subjects or very similar speeches to what King George III was making at the time. Uh, and they were supposed to rendezvous there uh, again at Charlestown. The Scottish troops were uh, going to be coming down and attacking Charlestown from the outside and while the fleet sailed right into the harbor and just blasted everything and built, uh, uh, give them a choice of whether or not to surrender the town or face being blasted. Charlestown at this time was one of the great walled cities in North America at the time. It had, uh, their, their walls were between 14 and 16 feet high that encompassed the whole uh, town. There were two forts. Uh, Charlestown, South Carolina is not unlike uh, New York Harbor, where uh, in New York Harbor, to get in, there are the Narrows. Well, Charlestown has, the, or current day Charleston, you'll hear me use the word Charlestown. I'm kind of caught in the past, so I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, there's a Narrows coming into Charlestown Harbor as well. Those were protected at the time with Fort Johnson on one side. That was a very, very powerful, uh, it almost, it was medieval castle looking. Uh, and uh, it had a windmill there. It had a drawbridge. Uh, it had very, very powerful cannon. It was positioned so it would be very, very difficult for uh, any unwanted ships to be able to come in that way without getting blasted. You'd have to line up one at a time. So it would be like ducks, even if you had 100 ships, they could probably dispatch each one of the ships in order. So the British were not that foolish, of course. So on the other side of the Narrows was this fort by the name of Fort Sullivan. At the time, it was now, if you go to Charlestown, it's known as Fort Moultrie. Uh, for the, uh, the uh, colonel that successfully defended it. Uh, so this was the first British Southern strategy. Uh, to, to come in there, they were going to sail right in. They were going to issue ultimatums to everyone, lay down your arms, swear allegiance to the king, all will be forgiven, but we're still going to probably have to round up the ringleaders, but don't worry about that. And then they were going to distribute another 10,000 stands of arms to the loyalists in the Lower South uh, and the Native Americans that they had allied with. Uh, that plan did not work out so well. And um, so I don't want to give you any spoilers uh, as I'm talking about the four British strategies today. So I'll leave that one and move to uh, one of the next ones in, in, in the following slides. So you'll have to find out if we won or lost that battle. Um, the second, one of the other areas of, of content about the book is the influence of a Quisling on, on the, the Southern strategy plans. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to betray your country. Um, most of us here are spies and traitors and that sort of thing. A Quisling is, we've, we've heard of this before, a sleeper or um, a, a someone that's embedded or something like that. 
Well, this particular character that we'll see in an upcoming slide uh, came to uh, America in 1773, and um, which was very curious. He's a British officer on half pay, and he buys uh, an estate in Virginia, which is uh, at that time a, a high society place to live. Uh, even though I'm sure my friends in Massachusetts would dispute that, my friends in New York would probably dispute that also, but um, that's where he uh, set up shop. Uh, and then proceeded to write. Uh, he was uh, extremely, he was, he was brilliant. He uh, was master of at least five languages, probably seven. Uh, and he started writing for the different newspapers and pamphlets. Uh, at that time, he was actually called a pamphleteer. Anyone could become a pamphleteer if they could write well and had some things that people would read and he could actually charge for them, so on and so forth. And that's what he did. His, his influence uh, over America uh, at that time, or, or the colonies, 13 colonies, was very significant because he maintained that the uh, colonies could defeat uh, Britain's finest army and navy. And they began to believe him. So, uh, and then he goes to see George Washington. Uh, George Washington and, and him uh, were both served under Braddock's army uh, during the seventy uh, during the French and Indian War, what the Europeans called the Seven Years' War. And uh, so they had sort of that uh, kinship of, of of serving under the same commander, even though they were not in the same units. And he convinced Washington to hire him. And Washington hired him. It took him two trips to Mount Vernon, but he hired him. So we're going to talk more about him. Where does he come into play? And one of the things that the reader has to decide in the re reading uh, Victory Day is, was, the, was it a plan from the beginning with King George III for him to um, be a spy for King George from the beginning and try and betray uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the Continental Congress and the, and the Confederation uh, so that Britain could retain the 13 colonies. That's what it puts in place. Or was he, was he simply a traitor? And now uh, there's first-person primary evidence of him becoming a traitor. So uh, as a matter of fact, it's, it's referred to as uh, Mr. Lee's plan. And it was uh, discovered in the mid-1850s that uh, his particular plan that was written in, uh, Colonel, in uh, General Lee's own handwriting. So uh, there is the handwriting, there is the smoking gun. So we know that he was at least a traitor, but was he a Quisling? Was he embedded? Was he put there for the purpose in the beginning? And that's something that the reader has to decide as they read these different facts and his actions during the course of the war, including his uh, putting forth one of the Southern strategy plans that was adopted by Whitehall in the British ministry. Very interesting. 
The book also contains, as uh, George III uh, wrote to the provincial governor, uh, Campbell, uh, just before the first attempted invasion in 1776, he wrote to Campbell and said that he wanted Charleston to be the seat of the war. Now, from a logistics perspective, it made a lot of sense because it's close to St. Augustine, which had a, a lot of uh, uh, gunpowder and men material and that sort of thing. And the West Indies, which was uh, the British had, uh, had many forts down in the West Indies also. And as, and as most know, the trade winds went in a circular pattern from where England is to the West Indies and up right to Charleston's doorstep and then back around again. So uh, that was the advice that King George uh, had and that was his opinion and that's what he expressed to Royal Governor Campbell in 1776. The book also gets into the unknown final phases of the war in the Lower South. Uh, this is something that I was talking about earlier today. The British captured Charleston with their fourth Southern strategy plan in 1780. And they're, uh, they occupied Charleston and South Carolina for 31 months. Often history books ignore the fact that the British came in and they captured Savannah in 1778 uh, and actually took one of the stars off the Betsy Ross flag and uh, installed the royal government in, in Georgia. Um, in North Carolina, uh, they, they took the eastern part of North Carolina where Fort Johnston is, not, not, not Fort Johnson as in Charleston, but Fort Johnston uh, at the Cape Fear River in the Wilmington area. Uh, where Fort Bragg is right now, uh, was Cross Creek uh, and in that area. They took that whole eastern sector of North Carolina also. So once the reader, the, the book is written in chronological order also, so it's up to the reader to decide, is this really the heart of America's revolutionary story? Is, is this really the way it went? So I'm going to leave that to the readers to decide, but that's what's in the book. I spoke earlier about what's in the papers of Nathaniel Green and how this was uh, Uh, the, the research source, the sources that, uh, that I used. Um, again, this was my guiding light. And uh, in, for, for those of you who have served in, in operations command centers and that sort of thing, you constantly have streams of information and intelligence coming in and that sort of thing. And half the time, you don't even know when you first look at it, what you're looking at. Who wrote it? Where did it come from? What do they want? 
does the person outrank me? What am I supposed to do with it? So on and so forth. You have to disposition these things. Well, these are 8,000 correspondents that's coming in, in the command headquarters, and they're trying to figure out, do we need to react to this? Is this intelligence that we need to get to the right hands very, very quickly? I mentioned to you earlier about the Battle of Moore's Creek. Why did not that, that not come off the way it, it, it should? It was planned by Lord uh, Dartmouth. Well, the answer was, is because there was a meeting here in New York that um, Charles Lee, uh, General Charles Lee, who was uh, hired by the Continental Congress at that time, uh, attended with World Governor Tryon. Uh, and um, at that meeting also was uh, the governor, uh, the royal governor of North Carolina and South Carolina. And amazingly, uh, you might ask, what was Charles Lee doing with an enemy governor uh, at a dinner? Well, that, that has never been answered. But what we can, what's very curious about that meeting is as a result of that meeting, the, uh, what, they, what they used to call the great conspiracy was, may have been hatched at that particular meeting with Charles Lee in attendance. Charles Lee was found out that he was at that particular meeting. And so he writes a letter to Washington and says, oh, yes, he's an old friend of mine. Don't worry about it. Uh, but I got some intelligence while I was there that there is a Scottish regiment that is going to be going down to Wilmington and coordinating with uh, General Clinton and Sir, uh, Sir Parker. And they're going to be uh, picking them up and going down and attacking Charleston. Well, that intelligence got down to North Carolina and that Scottish uh, regiment was completely destroyed. So that first Southern strategy plan was missing one of its key elements and uh, could, could not succeed, was missing that key element in, in that try. The other research sources in, in this particular, um, with the correspondences, I should say, there are 600 situational reports between Washington and Nathaniel Green. Uh, the Continental Officers, and of course, uh, you can look on the screen of uh, all of the different people that he was in contact with and were writing letters back and forth. So these, these correspondences are going, are, are uh, ordered by Green to go out, and then they're constantly coming in. And it's also describing troop movements, uh, those sorts of things. In addition to that, I needed to uh, accumulate many additional sources. Some of the best, for example, um, in the diplomatic negotiations, there are some fine, fine books out there that are primary source uh, referenced that I, uh, were absolutely essential for me to complete this book. And uh, that takes a lot of, diplomats love to write. So you have to be prepared to read and read and read and read. And may, much of what they write is what they think they're going to do or what they're thinking about doing, not what they're actually doing. So then you have to separate that. So, um, 
So, so that was part of the effort as well. And this is the guy, Nathaniel Green. Um, this is, uh, we, we actually, uh, the uh, Mount Vernon Ladies Association was so pleased that we were uh, writing this book. Uh, they said, look, we, we would like you to use this uh, and uh, we were very happy to put it in the book as well. Um, this uh, mesotent, which is turned into a lithograph, it, if you go to Mount Vernon, it's actually above George Washington's dining room table. Now, now I know many that are listening and many that are in this room that you have some very close friends. Do you have their picture above your dining room table? <laughs> The Postal Service in 1936 uh, wanted to issue uh, a, a stamp honoring the, uh, the U.S. Army and the, the, the people that created the, the U.S. Army and that sort of thing. And guess what they came up with? A one cent stamp of Green in Washington. This is the table of contents of the book. Uh, and you, you can see we had one publisher uh, that uh, we were not able to get together who wanted me to do two separate books. And uh, with part one, Defending America, and part two, Achieving Independence. In this particular book, you get both. So, um, but on Defending America, it really takes it from the beginning. This was an attack on the 13 colonies. So, and this tells you about how that attack took place and uh, how it evolved. Uh, and then the second part is about achieving independence where it, it talks about Green taking the initiative after, after the invasion in the South and after the British Southern strategy is working perfectly, by the way. Uh, uh, General Henry Clinton uh, and Lord Cornwallis uh, just uh, execute very, very well. They take Charleston in early 1780, and um, they, uh, they, they completely take South Carolina. The, the only hope in South Carolina is you get a couple of these rebel leaders or militia leaders. Many of you have heard are one of the great heroes in South Carolina. And of course, all over the nation now. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it's, it's, he's called the father of special forces, is uh, General Francis Marion, who many of you know as Swamp Fox. He, he and Thomas Sumter really kept some semblance of resistance in South Carolina when the British had, had virtually taken it over. So uh, that tells you uh, how. Um, when, when Green went down there with the Continental Army, how he had to stop that, and then he had to, had to reverse it. We were able to get uh, this painting also that is actually the um, attack on Fort Sullivan. And you can see the flag here. The, the, the British ship is still flying the... Um, uh, the Grand Union flag, which means that uh, it, 
they still uh, uh, control the, the 13 colonies. And then of course, uh, you see the Liberty flag that's flying over Fort Sullivan. Again, this was the first British Southern Strategy Plan. That was defeated on June 28, 1776. Guess what else happened on June 28, 1776? Thomas Hinckley was hung right uh, uh, where um, the near uh, in the Bowery of of, um, of New York City, uh, and it was attended by twenty thousand people. About ten to twelve thousand Continental troops were lined up. Uh, Washington was staying at the Richmond House uh, here in New York at the time, uh, and I want to thank the New York Public Library. They actually dug this out for me to have for this presentation tonight. This is actually watercolor that you can see by appointment at the New York Public Library. So uh, thank you again to the New York Public Library. So on the same day, Lord Dartmouth's plan, uh, acting in conjunction with uh, Tryon and Matthews, was to take down Charleston for the Silk Glove invasion. And Capture Charles, uh, capture Washington and all of his generals almost in the same time, well, not almost, but in the same time frame, and take them back to London, have them tried and probably hung uh, at uh, Tower London. So, this is the second plan. Second plan that never came off either. And the reason is because the Continental Army was impolitely uh, gallivanting around New Jersey and it attacked Trenton. Cornwallis uh, had uh, ships in New York Harbor loaded with the powder and, and guns and ammunition that they had captured from the Continentals months earlier, ready to go back down to Charleston. And it was gonna be about triple the amount of troops. They were, they were logged in to take about 7,500 troops. On the first attempt, they only took about 3,000 troops, 2,500 to 3,000 troops. So it's going to be bigger fleet and more landing craft. It was still going to be an amphibious operation. It never came off because just as they were loading the ships and about halfway through, Trenton was taken by uh, Washington and the Continental Army, as we all know on uh, Christmas night uh, in, uh, excuse me, Christmas Day uh, in 1776. So the third plan, this is Charles Lee's plan. He said, you really need a, you need a port in the Chesapeake. Logistically, that's where you want to dump everything. And then you have your Navy run troops up and down the East Coast. You're able to protect Philadelphia at the time. You're able to take, if, if you look at where the Chesapeake is, these maps are in the book and we were able to, I want to give a shout out to the University of North Carolina Press for allowing us to put these maps in the book and to Clark University. So uh, this really helps the, the reader be able to uh, track these things. Uh, the fourth plan was, um, 
Savannah first is a launch point, then Charlestown, and then the Chesapeake. So, um, and that's exactly what the British did. They needed a foothold in the South. They did not control Georgia at the time. So they invaded Savannah and captured Savannah in 1778. The Americans tried to take it back in 1779. It was unsuccessful. But now they were able to dump a bunch of supplies and a bunch of men and material down in Savannah. And of course, they had uh, Fort St. Augustine at the same time also. So now they really had a, a, a good foundation. And from there, they were able to uh, uh, take Charleston and put Charleston under siege. And it's one, it, for those of you who like siege warfare, this is really textbook siege warfare. I mean, uh, I, again, I have I have a friend who's really big on siege warfare, and he gets really excited. Boy, that was really good. They really did a good takedown. Um, but what they were going to do there is once they take Charleston, take South Carolina, then they go straight up North Carolina. And uh, this map is, is also in the book. So you get to see there's basically the King's Highway along the East Coast. They have to secure and take that uh, by invading South Carolina. And then they also have to take the um, road, the Fall Line Road, or what's called the Great Wagon Road. Those are just like the super highways at the time. And um, that's what they did. If you look at the forts, which I'm going to show you next, look at the forts. They said, man, first we're going to stabilize South Carolina. And uh, if you look at the forts, so for example, if I can get my cursor to do this, one of the key forts was around in this area here, and uh, it was called Star Fort, a brilliant uh, British engineering feat. Um, but once they came up through Charleston, whoops, once they came up through Charleston, uh, they were able to, they established all these forts. And all of these forts were, were uh, or, or the lion's share of these forts were created in 1780 after they took Charleston. So it was a very rapid building process. They planned to stay. <laughs> and Continental uh, General Charles Lee, this is the, this was he an opportunist, believer, spy, victim, traitor, or quizzler? Was the plan for him to get in in the beginning and infiltrate into the Continental Army and be right next to Charleston and then turn everything over. Now, there's, there's a lot of uh, information that hasn't, uh, and I haven't seen it in, in any of the books that is in this particular book. Now, again, I'm not going to give you a spoiler here, but uh, it, it's up for the reader to decide. Was he just a, a victim? Was he a believer? Was he a spy, traitor, or quizzler? By the way, this is not an actual picture of him, so I do need to. There are no known pictures of Charles Lee, and if you'll forgive me for saying this, uh, he was considered at the time the um, the, the the ugliest man uh, in North America. So this was a publicity picture. This was not uh, really how he looked. If you want to see, uh, uh, General Kosciusko did a drawing of him at uh, Valley Forge. Now, it's really quite a caricature, but it makes him even uglier than ugly. So uh, if you see that, you'll say, wow. <laughs> but 
but this is his PR picture. So why Charleston? Why did why was the crown so uh, fixated on Charleston? Uh, many of us are familiar with um, the the book by uh, The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Adam Smith, you know, came out with that bestseller in 1776. That's not a coincidence. That as a matter of fact, he had in his mind the economy of South Carolina at the time. It was the largest economy uh, in, in, in among the 13 colonies. And it was uh, absolutely, um, so if you calculate the imports and exports and look at the return on capital, which is in my book, you're looking at a 95 to one return on capital. Now, that's something that I think would even make Bernie Madoff blush. Uh, that's that's really a heavy return on capital. So in other words, if you invest one dollar, then there uh, you're you're probably on track to get ninety five dollars back. That's pretty good return. So Charleston had this network of rivers, and it had these. Um, uh, this the, the system of parishes. It had 12 parishes around Charleston. Charleston was a city-state at the time. And what you're looking at here is the Charleston Narrows. Uh, and you can actually see the British named the, uh, the entranceway into Charleston right in front of Fort Johnson, Rebellion Road. This is a British map. They called it Rebellion Road, and it's on all their maps. So they were not happy about uh, the, uh, the the Continental Army and the Patriots uh, uh, maintaining control over Fort Johnson, which was the main entrance into Charleston Harbor. Uh, this this map actually shows the uh, encampment of Lord Cornwallis and Leslie and Clinton on James Island as they were conducting the siege of Charleston. Um, again, a shout out to the Library of Congress. They're very kind in providing this. So I mentioned to you that Charlestown was not only a city state, but it was also a walled city. And we're talking again, you know, 14 to 16 feet high. There was this giant uh, hornwork and citadel uh, there that um, if, if, for those of you who go there, if you go to Marion Square today, that's actually where the hornwork sat. And it covered it. Uh, you can you can look up the dimensions. It's in my book also. But we're talking about uh, almost 400 feet across, and you can see that it has a drawbridge going in. It's 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 looks it had a very medieval look to it. And uh, this was the painting that is on the back of the book that I mentioned to you at the onset. So um, in, in recap, what we talked about is the, the four British Southern strategy plans, which are, are in the book, um, and how they evolved over time. And of course, we get into a lot of detail in the book about how they evolved. And General Charles Lee's role in actually um, having the British ministry buy into his plan after he's captured at, uh, at
tavern in New Jersey uh, and provides this inside information for him on how his plan for defeating the American, uh, the, the American army. Uh, and then we talked about why Charleston? How, really, we've always heard that, you know, the targets were someplace else. Uh, George III and most of the English, uh, most of the European nations at the time wanted Charleston because of the tremendous wealth that it generated. And it goes into detail in my book on how the wealth of nations and the land, labor, and capital in South Carolina, the infrastructure at the time, just produced tremendous amount of wealth, particularly in indigo and rice. So um, with that, I'll conclude my remarks and uh, I'm sure Scott will take questions at this time. Thanks, Cameron, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Anybody have any questions? And I'll give you the mic. Uh, your book was my favorite book for that all that writing on the moral character of warfare, which uh, stunned me. But as I thought more about it, uh, first of all, I was checking your facts right now. I apologize about whether or not South Carolina really had that uh, gross national product. And I don't think that's so. I think you would find that New England was 100 times more output. In fact, that's why the union, in fact, the pain of this whole process is how amazing you are on the victory. But it feels to, like to me that you could take the British out of the South, but not out of their heart. And Green's demise is still very mysterious. Uh, Green on a horse with, you know, whatever, polio. I realize now he's like FDR standing up with braces. As soon as he got onto a horse, he couldn't even make it as a private. But Hamilton tried desperately to hold the South in the Union through Pinckney, which took a very long time to sink in. And Sumner, you mentioned, but some of his, you actually criticized his moral behavior in here. And Francis Marion is five foot tall, not like the Patriot movie, which is even more remarkable how handicapped he is for height. So my, my questions boil down, I don't understand the British strategy, why it's not like Sherman going to Georgia. And it seems to me to be very grandiose and, and uh, problematic. And it doesn't seem like the South ever appreciated Wilmot's intelligence, which is obviously from Philadelphia families, or ever appreciated Green, whose death looks to me like murder more than it looks like. I don't believe it when I study it. I just can't understand how a guy who ran all over the hot South could pass away that quickly. And he promised, you taught me this, that he promised so much of his own money. He, play, he basically bought everybody's goodwill, and I don't think his the goodwill stayed. So to me, when I look later, 100 years after this, your incredible book, what I see is the South borrowing hundreds of millions from the, uh, from the British to leverage their cotton and still basically flying Confederate flags. And that's, they never appreciated deep down how much the union did for victory. And they, in the fantasy that they really had an economy, the economy's on slaves. How strong is that really an economy? I, I don't understand that. So I'm asking you a question. I'm sorry to ramp up. The question is this, did the South really ever grasp, when I watched the Order of Cincinnati, 
that the Union, New England, won, and that Mid-Atlantic States won the Southern Campaign, and that once they left Charleston, the United States became a 13 uh, nation, 13 state nation that was actually prophesied, if you really wanted to know, from Winthrop and his model of Christian charity in his 13 states. So I don't think the South ever appreciated that the Union won the war. And we still, you know, we'd have cotton iPhones if the South won the Civil War. I don't think there's a cotton. That's the question. Did the South appreciate the North and its contribution? Uh, yes, uh, in my opinion, and I think if you look at the evidence, they, they really appreciate it. Uh, everyone was very destitute at the end of the Revolutionary War. Uh, there was great poverty. There was great destruction. They followed, the British followed the scorched earth policy in uh, South Carolina and much of Georgia also. They stripped the Charleston, almost cleaned the, the, the bells of uh, uh, one of the major churches there that still stands today. They, they, they put those on the ships and, and we're talking about bells that weigh uh, uh, five, six, seven hundred uh, pounds each. And here they have to withdraw all of these, uh, you know, up to 15,000 people. Uh, and they, they have room enough to put those bells on. So uh, there, was a, there was a lot of poverty uh, and a lot of want when the British uh, uh, evacuated Charleston and surrendered Charleston. Thanks, Ken. Other questions? I'm a... Um, fan of uh, General Greene's predecessor in Southern Command, General Horatio Gates. I think General Gates is one of the underappreciated figures in American history. It, you could uh, summarize the American Revolution in one sentence. A British army surrendered to General Gates at Saratoga, and a second British army surrendered to General Washington and the French in uh, Yorktown, and that won America's independence. But uh, his reputation was tarnished. Gates's because when he was in command of the American army at Camden, Cornwallis defeated him. And to avoid capture, uh, General Gates had to get on his horse and ride very quickly, many, many miles away. It was a tremendous propaganda victory for the British if they could capture the hero of Saratoga at a time when the American uh, cause was very, very low. But I'm just curious as to uh, what you think, uh, how, what you think uh, of General Horatio Gates and how he would rate in the pantheon of American Revolutionary War generals. Thank you for the question. Uh, it, it's not in my book, but since it's an, opi an opinion question, I've spent some time at uh, Saratoga and I've studied Gates. And um, I, I think the campaign at Saratoga was absolutely brilliant. In uh, and of course, Kosciuszko was the guy who came up with a plan to trap the British at Saratoga. And you have a bridge named Petra, by the way. Uh, and um, Kosciuszko also came south. Uh, he, uh, and, and he, uh, um, he came up with this idea for Green uh, to be able to waterproof uh, the, the wagons so that they could go directly into the river and go right across the river and Cornwallis could only watch as they went across the river. So it was a brilliant design. This is so um, Gates was surrounded by some really, really top talent. Of course, he had Benedict Arnold at 
uh, Saratoga, we all know Benedict Arnold is a traitor, but he was also a great warrior. If you look at it until he turned turncoat and then he went around burning rich men in places and did some really terrible things, burned some towns in his hometown in Connecticut. Who does that? Uh, and um, so, and he also had, I, I, I really need to mention Morgan's riflemen. Morgan's riflemen were absolutely brilliant at Saratoga. Uh, and uh, he was a, a Virginia woodsman. And he was also the hero of the Battle of Calpans down in South Carolina also. So just to, uh, so he had some brilliant people around him. But that's what great com commanders do. They get great people around them. And apparently he wasn't afraid to have great people around him. I think he bumped into some very bad luck uh, when he, um, some, you have to trust your, your logistics officers and that sort of thing. And he got advice from a logistics officer on the way south to take the faster path rather than the longer path that had, they would be able to forge if they would have taken the longer path. They did not. Um, he, he took the advice of his logistics officers said, just go straight. Well, there was no food. And then, uh, his uh, commissary people fed his army uh, honey uh, just a few hours before the battle. Well, if you have an empty stomach and you take honey, I don't want to get into what happens, but it's not the kind of thing that you want uh, and, and expect your, your soldiers to be able to fight a, a pitched battle in the dark. So I, I think that that was, uh, again, you, you work hard to, to, to prevent bad luck from happening, but uh, that was not a good situation. I, I don't know how you could have won uh, for, for that sort of thing. Thank Thanks. you for the question. Uh, question. A question from online. Um, uh, did you conclude that Charles Lee sabotaged the defense of New York City in 1776? The who? Uh, Charles Lee. I, I, I want the reader to decide that. <laughs> I, I present a lot of facts. And in my book, I actually come up with five facts to let the reader decide. And uh, so I, I feel my job uh, in, in writing that book is to lay things out for the reader, not for me to uh, try and browbeat the reader into saying, you, you ought to think what I think. So, but it's an excellent question. And, and by the way, I will say one other thing about that. Um, they had a man on the inside, is the question. They had a man, they were just about, if the great conspiracy would have, would have happened in New York City, they would have had a, a man on the inside here also. So it would have been game, set, and match on June 28, 1776 in both places. I will like to just mention one other thing. Uh, the victory day is December 14, 1782. George Washington died 17 years later, exactly on that day. His cousin's wife, uh, Colonel William Washington, who was one of the great cavalry commanders in the South uh, and wrote the first US Army cavalry manual. Uh, his wife, Jane Elliott, uh, who made his flag that the Washington Line Infantry still has in Charleston, South Carolina, and is brought out every year on December 14th, 1780, uh, excuse me, 1780, but every year. <laughs> um, 
she died on that date also. So those are coincidences, they're not opinions. So did you, were you writing the book and found all this correspondence? Did you find the correspondence in the right book? I found the correspondences. I, I was actually, I, I was actually uh, the president of Nathaniel Green Freedom Monument Foundation, where we actually made a, uh, uh, a, a memorial statue to uh, honoring Nathaniel Green that sits in Greenville, South Carolina right now, right outside the library, uh, excuse me, the History Museum. Uh, and um, the last of the books were, had just come out. And as I was researching uh, what actually took place in South Carolina, and uh, I met I met Dr. Showman at the time, he's passed away now. And we actually went on, uh, we went to what, uh, on three or four different battlefields together. And I realized at that time that I needed to get all 13 volumes and I needed to read them over and over and over again. Now remember it's written in, the, in, the, in today's language also. So there's a lot of nuance there Many of them, um, many were written in code, but they, of course, it was decoded. I didn't have to decode them. Uh, but um, it takes a lot to be able to read that. It's not just, hi, Ken, how you doing today? Oh, we got some troops over there. Can you send us some troops? You'd have all of this nuance. And no one, um, everyone had to cooperate. And people spoke very flowery language then, even in command correspondence. I hope you're doing so well today and everything. And, there's just over that hill over there, and can you spare some people? You have to, you have to boil it down to that. But the answer to your question is, this drove the book. But it takes, and and I invite people to, uh, if they, you really want to learn more, to get your library. They're very expensive, by the way. So you get your library to get them and uh, and read those correspondences, and you can see it first person. It's action happening. Uh, so, so to me, it comes alive. I hope that answered your question, sir. Sorry. Feedback. <laughs> Any other questions from the audience? Um, in your opinion, then, would you say that General Nathaniel Green was George Washington's most astute general or his finest general, would you say? He was the strategist for the. Um, uh, he was the strategist that enabled us to win our independence. And um, he, he was he, he was absolutely brilliant. If you, uh, I, I've studied his correspondence and he's he dealing with political leaders also. Remember, he has no real authority over the state's governors. I mean, they could turn on him in any minute. They could just say, we're gonna go our own separate way. Uh, and, that's, you know, we, we see politics on all around us and on TV and that kind of stuff. Well, he really had politics. And this is in the middle of a war. Uh, and, but um, I, I, he was, I, I think most historians will say that he was Washington's strategist and Washington listened to everything that he had to say. 
They had it. Uh, I don't want to reveal too much it's in my book, but there's a uh, ride that they, they meet back up after the war, after uh, in, in April of 1783, uh, you know, the British send over their uh, proposal and say, yeah, we'll do the independence thing. We Parliament voted by a very narrow margin. Uh, and so Congress accepted it and then disbanded both armies. Well, in uh, later on in the year, um, before Washington does his farewell in, at Francis Tavern, they meet up in Trenton again. Well, this was the scene of their liberty or death um, uh, operation that really had very little chance of success. I mean, if you if you guys know, you know, military people and, and that sort of thing, you say, hey, take a look at this. Would you have done this? It was crazy. I mean, it was it was it was liberty or death, and it was probably going to wind up dead. And they made it happen. So they met, met back up in 1783 there. And I don't want to describe the scene to you because it's in the book. And I tried to make it is, is the best that, that I believed it was at the time. But you know, if that doesn't bring tears to your eyes, then you don't have a heart. But uh, <laughs> the next day they rode together to Princeton. And if I could have just listened in on that conversation, or Green advising him, now what? And who's going to be the image now for uh, the United States? Who is going to be the person that, that has to be almost the father of America, and so on and so forth? If there was a secret recording on that, I would pay dearly for it. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to go so long with this attempt. Thanks, Ken. Uh, two more questions online, and then we'll probably wrap it up. Um, what was the percentage of loyalists in the Lower South, and what was their background? And then second, did Lafayette figure prominently in the Southern Theater? Ah, oh, those are two really good questions. Uh, I'll, I'll take the first one first. The, um, the, the loyalists, this was an evolutionary war, and for, I, for those of you who have not Watch the uh, series turn on uh, on I don't know it's on TNT. Yes, uh, I, I would certainly uh, there's it's not perfect, but there is uh, there's some 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 fabulous information in turn, including one of the spies, by the way, that's that's shown in turn winds up outside of Charleston, South Carolina, also doing the spy for. Uh, Clinton down there also. But the, the loyalists were, <laughs> the Tories were people that had, I'm uh, going to make a distinction here between Tories and more uh, loyalists. The Tories were, were, was a political party. And many people identified with being part of the uh, Tory group that um, where the uh, colonies would have a type of independency, but like Ireland, where they would have home rule, but they would still be under the king. And uh, by the way, the, the crown negotiated with Ireland at the same time in 1780, uh, two years before they negotiated with us, uh, and granted Ireland their 
their they called it independence, but it was really home rule. And they, of course, remained within the crown. That's what they wanted to do to the United States. That's why I say in my book, Sovereign Independence, Collective Sovereign Independence of all 13. Loyalists were people who believed that they were king subjects and was king over conscience. You heard me say that earlier. Uh, there, was, there was a lot going on. If you've only been uh, a, a loyal subject living in one of the different kingdoms in Europe, and that was the only thing you knew, you had a trust it, that was passed down from generation to generation. You didn't question the king or the queen or the monarchy at that particular time. Loyalists, for them to break away, um, you know, you, you'll find examples left, right, and sideways. Um, like Drayton is a, is a perfect example. Um, or um, it, it, uh, there are many examples of people who moved away from being a loyalist until they couldn't stand it no more, kind of thing. Um, so people turned, people changed their minds. And you'll see in my book, I hope that my book shows the reader how you start getting this where the brutality is so much, I am now turning towards away from being a loyalist, away from being a uh, subject of King George. And I believe that in the idea of conscience over king and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that was kind of a long answer to your question about loyalists. And the other question was about uh, the Lafayette uh, figure prominently in the Southern Theater. Lafayette actually came in near Georgetown, South Carolina. He had to, the British were blockading Charlestown at the time, so he had to come in uh, right below Georgetown. And there's, there's really good records of his, of his first dinner uh, at um, uh, in, in a home in one of the plantations at the time that I believe still exists. And then he made his way down to Charlestown. Um, it was uh, at those meetings that he was convinced that he needed to go up to Valley Forge and offer his services to, um, uh, to, to, to Washington up there. He initially came into the South uh, and that's where he thought that the seat of the war was. His intelligence was that that was going to be the seat of the war. And they said, no, nope, it's back up there. So he went back up there. And of course, then it migrated back down. Lafayette was the person, in my opinion, him and uh, Anthony Wayne for bottling up Cornwallis on the peninsula of the Yorktown Peninsula. Um, they did an excellent job. They did it undermanned. It was before the French arrived, and they just had uh, cavalry forces. But both Wayne and Lafayette became expert trainers, and that was the whole key. They were not only expert at, at, at uh, equestrians, but they became very good at training people to be dragoons, and that was a type of warrior at the time that was like our special forces today. I mean, they were really something. They bottled up Cornwallis on the peninsula 
which was which was a brilliant following. They were outmanned, outgunned, and everything, and yet they bottled up Cornwallis. The French fleet came in, um, offloaded supplies, men, and material, and now outnumbered Cornwallis. And then uh, uh, Graves was defeated by uh, De Grasse and the Chesapeake, and Cornwallis was stuck. Game set match. And again, for those who like siege warfare, the Yorktown siege is classic French siege warfare. And then in, in Charlestown, you have classic British siege warfare. Sorry, I get excited about this stuff. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, oh, okay. all right. I think that's all we have time for tonight. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. Again. So thank you to those of you who joined us in person. Thank you to those of you who joined us on Zoom. Thank you for your support of the museum today and over the years. If you enjoyed the lecture, we'd like to stay up to date with programs. You can join our mailing list at francistavernmuseum.org. You can also find our upcoming events calendar there. Our next lecture is on a Monday, a bit of a, a, bit of a switch up on Monday, April 3rd. Uh, and if you are in the building right now and you're interested in obtaining a copy of our book, we have them for sale in the back and you can get them signed as well. Uh, so once again, thank you all for joining us at Francis Tavern Museum and we hope to see you again soon.